I was looking at the, the dates of birth that Chris sent me uh, last night and uh, realized that Charlie had just had his second birthday. So praise God for that. And uh, we're thankful for how the Lord's moving and working in the Morris family. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. I knew we were doing baby dedication, but I totally uh, had it at a different spot in my mind. You have your Bibles, hopefully, turn to Ezra chapter 1. We'll be there in a minute. Um, as I was saying, if, you have, uh, if it's your first time with us here today, we, we encourage you to uh, fill out a guest card. There's one on the very right-hand side of your bulletin. I hope you received one when you came in uh, this morning. And uh, you can fill that out and place it in any one of the drop boxes. There are two in the back, one in the lobby, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. And also, if you'd like to give to the ministry of the church, uh, that's a great way for you to do that in a tangible, physical form, uh, to give through check or money. uh, That Here in any of the drop boxes, you can do that. But if you'd like to, you can give online at newhopefwbc.com slash give. And that can set up a reoccurring gift that you can be involved continuously in the ministry of of the Lord here at New Hope Church. Stand with me as we read from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I mentioned earlier that we are going to begin a, a sermon series in the book of Ezra, and I hope that you understand that this is a book of history, which involves this morning, particularly for us to unveil a little bit of the history that's going on here. God's people are in exile. They've been in captivity for 70 years, and this proclamation says they can finally go home. This is the king's decree. You may go back to Jerusalem, but I hope you understand there is a larger and a bigger and better king's decree that's going on in this passage. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord to bless our time and the word this morning? Father, help now. Lord, I desperately need your strength. I pray that you will move in my heart, that you will stir every single one of us, that we will understand that you are the sovereign God Almighty who loves us and gave himself for us so that we can have a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, as we think about what it means for you to be in control this morning, that we will relinquish control of our lives or whatever control we think we might have of our own small lives and give in and give up to you. Father, please, move, help. I pray that you'll bring peace to those who need encouragement today, and I pray that you'll bring conviction to those who are running from you. It is in your holy and your precious name I pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let me tell you about the first time I drove a motorcycle. going to be good. 
When I was in college, I had a friend who was a fix-everything, able-to-weld-get-anything-running kind of a guy. He loved Jeeps. He loved Harleys. Um, I have no idea why he chose to hang out with me because I am none of those things. I wish I were, but I'm not. Uh, By this point, um, he had already owned a couple of bikes, and I had never gotten on one of them. I don't know how it came about, but one night after a church service, he looked at me and he said, you're going to ride my new motorcycle tonight. He was going to take the crash bars off the next day, and before he took them off, he wanted me to to get on it. Let's give Corey a shot at this. So there I am, in dress clothes, in the church's empty parking lot, astride this motorcycle. Jared has walked me through every step carefully. He was was there when I ran the brakeless minibike into the wall of our high school building, so he knows I'm going to need help. He was nearby when I flipped the, soup up, the souped-up go-kart and broke my arm. Um, he, was, he was nearby. So he knows Corey's going to need some extra direction. So I'm on it, got the helmet on, and just after I had started it up, he leans over, yells through the visor, when you lay it down, just be careful. It was the word when that got me. There was no if you lay it down. It was when you lay it down. Incidentally, that was my first and last time riding a motorcycle. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, And we'll put it in air quotes that I rode a motorcycle. Um, When you lay it down. That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence But then again, as I said earlier, this friend has been with me at pretty much every dumb thing that I had done throughout my life. He knew me, but not half as much as we are presented to or introduced to an all-knowing, omniscient God who knows His people. That's why that integral to His covenant, His promise that He made with the Old Testament saints that he put in some when you lay it down clauses. When you disobey. Not if you disobey, but when you disobey, this will happen. Chapter after chapter, God had His law recorded for the children of Israel. Do this. Stay away from that. Don't do that. Just over a third of the Old Testament deals with God's people getting to God's promised land, this land of Canaan, and all that would need to take place for them to set up their lives, to have have a relationship with Him, was all in the law. The Lord wanted them in this land flowing with milk and honey. I don't understand it all, but this was the place, Canaan, where they could best serve Him, minister to the nations. This was the place He wanted them. However, he didn't want them there if the goodness of the land turned their hearts away from him. Hear me on that. We hear a lot about the Lord wants to bless you. The Lord wants to bless you. That is true. We need to put a big asterisk by it though. He does not want to bless you with things that will distract you from him. And here, the children of Israel had been given the land getting all the blessings that had come from Canaan. The land flowing with milk and honey, as I said earlier. But he doesn't want them to live 
in the blessing that distracts them from him. If they choose to live in rebellion against him, he will not allow it. So he promised them that this land, in a solemn vow, he told them that he would give it to them, and here's the covenant. We don't use this this language of covenant much today. We've done a couple of um, wedding ceremonies here recently at the church. Um, That's probably the closest we get to it, where we have this idea of a a covenant relationship of a promise that two are making. In this covenant between God and his people, God promised them his land or this land. He promised them his help and his faithfulness. But on the flip side of this covenant, God knew that these people who often bickered and complained against him, he knew that they would not remain faithful to them. Imagine that. Men, women, go back to your wedding day. You're standing there facing each other. You are saying the covenant vows, I, Corey, take thee, Rachel, or you, Rachel, what have you. I take you to be my wife, to have to hold this day forth, all the nine. You're saying that vow, and you know, think of this, you know that that person will not be faithful to you. If you can even grasp a little bit of that, you can understand what this covenant is between God and His people. You can understand the book of Hosea even much better if you see that. That as God promised, I will be yours and you will be mine. He knows that in the other individual's mind or in the people's mind of the Jews that they are not going to be faithful to God and they are And so because God knew that his people were going to back out of their end of the covenant, he put in some when you lay it down language, when you disobey me, blank is going to happen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25 gives us some of that language. He says, when you beget children and grandchildren and you have grown old in the land and you act corruptly and make carved images in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger I call God says I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess you will not prolong your days in it but will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you because God knew that Israel would fall into this sin of idolatry and worshiping fake, wooden, carved, hewn stone gods, the Lord told them, when you disobey, you will be scattered. Not if, when. Similar to the banishment from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are pushed out of paradise, He would not allow them to live in the land of promise not worshiping Him. They would have missed the point if they would have gotten the blessing without having a relationship with the blesser. And so when you disobey, when you turn to idolatry, when you serve other gods, you will be dispersed and cast out from this land. Do you think they worshiped idols? Oh, you bet. 
They worshipped idols. I mean, barely a month had passed since they had left the land of Egypt. They had walked across the seabed on dry land before they took off all their jewelry, they melted it down, and they fashioned a golden calf as the focus of their worship. They had the image of the one true God emblazoned upon their hearts, and they chose to worship a baby cow with things that they had torn from their ears and from their bracelets, from their wrists. If you've ever been in a culture where idol worship is a big thing, uh, that's the only way that I think you can even grasp a bit of the weight of this. We don't necessarily understand this in a Western culture. In traveling a three-hour bus ride from New Delhi, India to Agra, India, you will pass by literally hundreds of shrines just off the highway, and not one of them will be without someone worshiping at them. It's heartbreaking to see poor villagers who are themselves starving to death. They would approach the idol and they would leave good, cooked food for offerings to these idols. That statue is not going to eat the food. The dogs, the insects are going to devour it. Meanwhile, their children are back home starving. That's idolatry. Idolatry is a heartbreaking sin. You sacrifice and you sacrifice for that object or that idea or that sense of deity. Many of the Middle Eastern gods of this time required the offering of actual human children And although I'm sure it was devastating to families, they paid that cost in a worship to their gods. That's what you need to understand about idolatry. Even in a modern era, it is the innocent who have the larger price exacted from them. They suffer for the good of the worshiper. God's people, you read the Old Testament Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, they are given to idolatry. And so are we, by the way. It might not be a carving of wood or the melting down into images, but there is a reason that nearly 500 years ago, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory, constantly making little gods that we will spend our life, waste our life in service and seeking after. One day, your sin of putting everyone and everything before God is going to catch up with you. And it did. The children of Israel. God sent prophet after prophet to the people to try and get their attention. He sent Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Isaiah and Hosea and Nahum and Micah and Joel and Jeremiah. In quick succession and oftentimes overlapping each other, these prophets, they pled with the people of God, return to the true worship of the one true God. But the warnings, they fell on deaf ears because they worshiped deaf and dumb idols. Things that couldn't have a relationship with them. They didn't hear the warnings of God's prophets. 
Look at how this is depicted in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on, on His dwelling place. But they, verse 16, they mocked the messengers of God. They despised not just the prophet's words, God's words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. We're going to talk about a hopeless situation. Prophet after prophet after prophet, and every single one is mocked and ridiculed and laughed at. Their message thrown down on the ground. They're arrested, many of them killed, until there is no remedy. What's God going to do? To leave them there in the promised land, in their sin, it would only allow more and more generations of innocent children to be sacrificed to these fake gods. Only more children would grow up in families where they don't have a relationship with the one true God. To leave them there would be like the parent who never disciplines her child, even though she knows that that lack of discipline could very well end up for the actual death of the child. So 2 Chronicles continues, Therefore, God brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these were taken to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. When you disobey, when you follow other idols, I will disperse you. And it just so happens that the kings of Babylon come in, or the kings of Chaldeans come in and overtake them. So what is this when you disobey language? It's captivity. It's exile. That was the price that they're going to pay for their rebellious worship of other gods. We're going to walk through a lot of history here, so if I've lost you already, I pray you will buckle down and I pray that the Holy Spirit will help me and you stay on the same page. Babylon comes sweeping into Jerusalem. They demolish everything. I don't think we in America who have not been attacked in our homeland in a long while, maybe John's testimony spoke a little bit to the last time that that really was the case. I don't know that we really understand what it means for another country to come in and lay waste to everything that we hold dear. To slaughter our children and to take those that they don't kill away from us. What young men and women weren't slain in the fight were taken captive in Babylon. How long? Lord, how long? 
We understand that we have sinned. We understand that we have lived idolatrously, that we have disobeyed your law. How long are we to live in exile? Verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 36. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You see, here's the problem. Not only had they forsaken the worship of the one true God for worshiping idols, but they had neglected to keep God's law concerning Sabbath years. Hang with me on this. We are at very least somewhat knowledgeable about the idea behind a Sabbath day. Every week, you ought to cease from labor and enjoy a day of restful worship. Calvin said it. I'm just reiterating it. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So we idolaters, we see this chance at Sabbath as a chance to catch up on everything. Not to rest, but to waste more energy on our own selfish pursuits. To work more. To get more money. We either neglect real rest or we worship ourselves or we do both. It was worse for the Jews though. While some in our day and age might be neglectful and disobedient of honoring a day of restful worship, the Jews did more so. Because in addition to one day out of every seven for rest, they were also set to observe one year out of every seven as a year of Sabbath. Six years, they would labor and they would work in the field and they would sow their seed and they would harvest their crop. But on the seventh, it was to lay at rest. And the people of God were supposed to trust in the work of God to provide for them. And here's the thing. You may think that that's an antiquated and a strange law that God makes. But I want you to think with me. What miracles of provision God would have worked in their midst had they obeyed this idea of Sabbath years. We'll never know because the Hebrews never kept the Sabbath year. Now we could discuss the ecology behind it all, the value of not overworking the land, letting it rest. I'd really like to talk to some of our farmer, farmers in our congregation about some of this, uh, to be honest with you. But more important than those natural principles is the fact that God wanted His people to depend on them for their daily bread and they were unwilling to do so. I can't trust them that much. No, 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 I, I gotta go out and work the field. It's on me. Totally neglecting that He's the one who brings the rain. <laughs> He's the one who has created the harvest time. He's done all of that. No, no, I can't trust God for this. I, I've gotta do it by my own hands. They were unwilling to do that. This God who had provided for their every need in the wilderness for 40 years, literally raining down manna from heaven, literally dropping quail right there on their plates, making bitter water sweet, causing rocks to split open and water gushing out when they're thirsty. This God who even prolonged their clothing and sandals to not wear out for 40 years, their clothing grew with them. Parents of young children, don't you wish 
that their shoes would grow with them? It did. During the wilderness, for 40 years, God provided everything for them. And they cannot trust God with one year out of seven. For their lack of faith in God, the timing of their captivity was set to 70 years. That's 490 years worth of Sabbath years. That's how long you're going to stay in exile. That's how long this, I don't want to call it time out, is set. But this is the extent of your punishment. 70 years. As slaves, citizens of other countries, without having any nationality or any real idea of who God is for the most part. 70 years. Was God absent during this time of exile? Where was God for the Jews in this time when they were pushed aside and in captivity for these 70 years? God was not silent nor absent. It's here that we have the stories of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. It's here that Esther's star shines bright. This is where Ezekiel's prophetic plays, they take center stage. God hasn't left his people. In spite of their unfaithfulness to them, to him, he remains steadfast and sure, faithful to them. No better is this taught than in the life of Daniel. Daniel, this one who was of those taken from Jerusalem and thrown into Babylonian captivity. Daniel was a young teenager at the time. He was one of those carried away into Babylon, the smartest and brightest of the Jews to serve in the Babylonian court. And serve he does. He gives guidance and he stands strong and he warns when appropriate. And that is often, it seems like. Daniel served under at least Four opposing kings throughout his life, each one conquering the other, and for some reason, they each decided to keep Daniel on in a counselor's capacity. Think of that, think of that with me. Even in the most democ- democratic societies that we have, think of the U.S. right now. The staff of one president is pretty much totally replaced every four years with another president's. But here, Daniel serves multiple kings and several kingdoms. But one night, one of the kings, Belshazzar, he decides to throw a raucous party that really truly is too perverted to really go into detail from a pulpit. And it's here at this party that he decides to go into his grandfather's treasury and bring out some of the spoils of war which his family had gained throughout the years. And so he pulls out the cups and utensils, plates that had been used in the service to God at the temple. And he passes them around as party favors and he fills them up with liquor and they all get drunk toasting false gods with these utensils that had once been used for the service of God. God had enough of it. No more. 
No more, Belshazzar. So there on the back wall, the Lord caused a hand to appear and to begin writing a message engraved on the plaster in the wall. It read, Mene, Mene, Tikal, Eupharsin. Belshazzar sobers up really fast. Daniel 5 tells us the story that he loses control of his bowels, the blood drains from his face, and his knees begin knocking together violently. He doesn't even know what sound the individual letters make, much less does he know what the words and the message means, but he is scared to death at this hand from heaven that engraves on the wall. Series of events. Daniel is called. He relays God's message to Belshazzar that God had numbered his days, Mene, and his time was up. God had weighed his kingdom, Tikel, and it's been found wanting. You've come up short. And now his kingdom would be divided, Eupharsin taken from him. Belshazzar tries to laugh it off. He throws on a robe and a a necklace around Daniel, trying to make good with the man of God. Too late. The damage had been done. Belshazzar's time was up. Babylon's time was up. That very night, Persian troops had already diverted the water source of the city and soldiers were, as this was all going on, they were crawling through the ancient water gates, storming and conquering the city where this raucous party is going on. Why does any of that matter? Corey, why are you going off on this tangent about exile? Because all of this led to a man by the name of Cyrus the great of Persia, to come in control of Babylon where God's people had been held in captivity. Cyrus takes the stage. Why does that matter? Well, because about 120 years before Cyrus was even born, the prophet Isaiah called Cyrus out by name. Can I say that again? 120 years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah, in a prophecy, wrote down his name that the Lord had anointed a man by the name of Cyrus for a particular task. Isaiah writes it this way in Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. All of what I've just talked about, all of this sordid history that leads us to this man named Cyrus the Great coming to power at just this exact time, 70 years of exile for God's people, they had been in captivity. And now, with the crowning of Cyrus the king, I'm sure that there is great anticipation among the Jews who just wanted to go home, who wanted to go back to the land of promise. And this 
this, his first year as king, Cyrus steps up, this unbelieving, egotistical, power-hungry, heathen ruler that we're going to learn a lot more about over the next coming weeks. We find out that God had been doing more than holding his hand, as Isaiah prophesied. He had actually been stirring his spirit to where one of the first things that Cyrus does when he takes office in this new Persian empire by overthrowing Babylon is that he sends out a decree. On the first year of Cyrus's, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help with him silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. God moves upon the heart of a heathen king to bring about his will. Say, Corey, cool story. Great history lesson. Pretty neat animation on the wall there. Thought I was there in Belshazzar's court. Great, great stuff. Save it for the classroom, though. What, what does any of this have to do with the preaching of God's word? Why are we going to waste our time in a history lesson? One word. And it would be good for you to learn it well. Sovereignty. God is sovereign. There's a bunch of old school free old Baptists who just woke up and they're getting a little nervous. Talk about sovereignty. Whew. If there is one thing that Ezra 1, 1 through 4 teaches us, it is that God is in control. At every stage and at every level, both big and little, God is in control. So often, we are presented with an unhelpful view of God's sovereignty, which tends to depict God as some aloof chess player just moving pawns around on the board willy-nilly, doing what he sees fit. Rarely, if ever, though, do you see a biblical view of sovereignty and that God works his will for the nations and individuals through the free agency of men. He does this. And he is more sovereign, I suggest, because he gives us a free will and works through us. Here in Ezra, we have this beautiful picture of a God who is working all things together for good to those who love Him, as Paul would state in Romans 8. Or if you'd like, you could, do, you could go to Ezra's chapter 8. And he'll say it essentially the exact same way. 
Ezra 8.22, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. But His power and His wrath are against all those who forsake Him. So let's talk about this idea of sovereignty. That God is in control. No matter how long it takes for His will to be accomplished, and no matter who is in power, God is in control. Hear me on this. Our issues with God's control are usually twofold. Number one, God, you are not working fast enough. Your timetable of how you are doing things does not fit nor gel with my timetable of how I think you ought to be doing things. That's our first issue with the sovereignty of God. Second, God, you are not doing things the way I would do them if I were God. Those also sound like a lot of reasons why our wives doubt us to do something. You're not doing it on the way I want it done or in the time span. That I want. Anyway, moving on. This isn't a marriage course. Let's take that first one. God, you're not working fast enough on my timetable. Christian, we are playing the long game. You know that. But do you know that? Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? We treat the promises of God like a microwave. We want them here and now, on our plate, this instant. This is the root of almost every heretical doctrine that you hear preached among prosperity gospel preachers today. They are focused on the right here and right now, and true believers ought to be focused on eternity, the long game. Seventy years God's people had been in exile. Think of that. Seventy years is long enough for two generations to pass away. There were those who were living in exile who would never see the promise fulfilled, but they still live by faith, as Hebrews 11 and 12 tells us. They are trusting that God will accomplish His will in His time. These are men like Jeremiah. Can I tell you about Jeremiah? Jeremiah faithfully preached God's Word, and he never had anyone believe him. When I pulled up this morning, Well, actually, when I was walking over from Sunday school this morning, and I saw the dozens of vehicles out in our parking lot, I just kept thinking, Lord, thank you. Thank you that there are people who are coming to hear the message from God's Word. Thank you for allowing me to have this opportunity, because this is something that Jeremiah never had in his entire life. He never had the blessing of a congregation who would sit and hear the word of God preached. In fact, he was mocked his entire life from young and old. He was wrongly dragged into court for defamation. He was imprisoned for preaching and then he was released. He had his life's work torn to shreds and incinerated page by page in front of him. He was wrongly accused of being a traitor because he valued God's kingdom over this world's citizenship. He was thrown into a dungeon where he almost suffocated in the feet 
depth worth of mud until he was ultimately released, but then quickly kidnapped and carried away, and he falls off into anonymity. We don't know what happened to Jeremiah. But not one convert, nobody ever listened to him, they all ridiculed him. Nevertheless, Jeremiah was faithful to preach God's word regardless of the consequences, aching, longing for God to do something big in his day, but he never saw it. Not even a hint of it. All he saw was the destruction of the temple and the desolation of Jerusalem. Still, he proclaimed what I read from the call to worship this morning, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's from Jeremiah, and that's the life that he lived. We stencil that, that verse, on our walls, don't we? Ladies, don't lie. You've got some tile somewhere in your house that says Jeremiah 29, 11. We, you know, we do the whole embroider it on our pillows. I had to look down because I couldn't think of the word for embroidery. We post it on our social media accounts. I'm claiming this verse. Claiming this verse. I know that the Lord wants peace for me. We don't even understand that that verse is in the midst of heartache and desolation and captivity and pain. But Jeremiah clung to it without ever actually viewing the peace or hope once in his life. Why? Because eternity, God's timetable, is not ours. He continues in Jeremiah 29. We usually cut it off because that's the uplifting and good part. It goes on. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Jeremiah 29, 11 is about people coming home again. But Jeremiah never saw it. Our second issue with God's sovereignty is that He is not doing it our way. We've got an issue with His timing, but we also have a way in which He's doing it. How long and why Him? Why Him? The Lord raised up Cyrus. Hear me on this. Cyrus is not the guy that you would want to vote in office. Cyrus is not the guy that you want your daughters to grow up and marry. There is no stamp of approval ever given on Cyrus. Do not make more of him than what he is. When Scripture, when Isaiah calls him the anointed of God, that means that God will use him, but not that he's perfect. Oh, not by a long shot. Cyrus is not even a godly man. In fact, if you really read the text that we've already read in verses 1 through 4 of Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus was doing this thing, allowing captives to go back home, releasing the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem. He's doing this out of his own selfish and arrogant and 
desire to lord over a menagerie of countries. He thinks it would be cooler if he had people from all walks of life speaking all different languages instead of just one homogenous country all looking and acting the same. He wants a zoo of people. He doesn't want just one singular family. And so he allows them to all go back so that he can lift his name up. Friend, when you turn on the news or you scroll through your news feed, and you rightly get angry at some of the foolishness that is taking place in our world today because some of its supposed leaders understand full well what Proverbs says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. If that's the case for rulers of empires, how much more for mere mayors and senators and governors and presidents? By his decree, Cyrus thought, I'm going to make my name great. Everybody's going to hear about Cyrus. I will go down in history as Cyrus the Great. But in reality, all Cyrus was really doing was fulfilling another king's decree, and making the Lord's name famous to the point that I have to remind you who Cyrus is, and even still, you might be foggy on some of the details of the history lesson that you learned in middle school about this guy, but you all know the name of Jesus. He used Cyrus so that God's people could come back to him. I'm out of time. To only talk about the positive side of sovereignty is not right, though. You need to understand, when we say things like, God is in control, to those who are living for God, loving God, obeying God, that is heartwarming and comforting to those who are enemies of God and who are living in disobedience to Him. The notion of sovereignty, of the control of a God of this universe is alarming. There's a sense of authority to punish running through this story. When I say God is sovereign, He is sovereign even in the children of Israel's disobedience. He's in control even in Belshazzar's blasphemy and everywhere in between. The sovereign God of the universe is in control and He alone has the authority to punish and exile and overthrow. Do not think He will not intercede into your life when you have turned your life over to idolatry and not trusting in Him. If He is in control, and He is, friend, He will do what it takes to get your attention and bring you back. I think it's been used in every action film for the last decade to the point where it's probably just seen as just a gravelly Johnny Cash song with a catchy beat. But God's going to cut you down. 
It can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Cash wasn't the first. That's actually a, a pretty old spiritual. It's been tauntingly recorded by Marilyn Manson and others. The children of Israel needed it preached. The Babylonians, they should have heeded its warning. And we need to be reminded of it often that you can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Because He is sovereign. And aren't you thankful that He is a loving God who's in control? who disciplines to turn our hearts towards Him. He is in control. And that is reassuring to His people, but it ought to keep you up at night if you are running from Him. Because He will block your way and keep you in captivity, questioning everything about your life until you ultimately come to Him. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.